Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, welcome to Bergen Park. We're glad that you've gathered with us. We are a community of people that are accepted by grace. We come to God's presence not because we got it together. Instead, we are those that seek to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to to do what he does, which means we have to open our hearts, our minds to his truth and to his word, to his spirit, to work among us, to bring healing and restoration, to change our thoughts and our minds and our emotions, and really to allow his, his word through the power of the spirit to speak. And so today, the passage we're in is in Psalm 107. It's this beautiful, amazing poetry of God's love. That we're in this series where we're looking at uh, what does it mean to be honest with God? You know, so often, you know, we kind of tell God what we think he wants to hear instead of really pouring our heart out in prayer and in honesty and in brokenness and sometimes in joy before God's presence. And the, the Psalms, what they do, they're, they teach us how to pray. They teach us it's okay to express emotions, you know. It's okay to, in God's presence, to express grief or sadness or to express elation and joy and excitement. What you find in the Psalms are emotions that many of us are uncomfortable with. Now, the psalmist isn't driven by his emotion. It's not just about emotionalism and allowing those emotions to drive him. No, he's taking his emotions and he's using them as a means of drawing into God's presence. So some of us are pretty cerebral. I get that. And that's where I am. We got some praise in the back. It's all right. A little Pentecostalism. We love that. And we get into the mind, but God also wants to work through the heart, the will, to open us up to the fullness of who he is. And in Psalm 107, what we're discovering is looking at the depths of God's love. And before we read the passage, let me explain it to you so that when we read it, it begins to make sense. That Psalm 107 is based around these four stories, stories of these four groups of people and the difficulties that they went through. And in each of these four groups, They cried out to God, and God delivered them. God brought healing. He changed their life, and they respond by saying, may the steadfast love of the Lord ever increase, that they encountered God's deliverance. They encountered his love, and in encountering his love, they they praised and, and glorified God for what he had done in their life. But as we look at this psalm, what we have to realize is this psalm is describing the love of God in ways that may not fit our categories. That there's one thing that I think our culture agrees on when it comes to God, we don't agree on a lot. But even those that say, you know, if there is a God, that God must be a God of love. The question is, what does that love look like? And where does that idea of the love of God come from? So let's jump into Psalm 107 as we kind of dive into this picture of God's love and how God loves us sometimes in ways that are mysterious and difficult to understand. So let's jump in, Psalm 107. It starts and it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered from the lands. He's gathered them from the east and from the west and the north and the south. Now here's the first group, verse 4. And some wandered in the deserts, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted within them. 
And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let him thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul. He fills with good things. The second group comes along in verse 10. Now, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. They were prisoners in affliction. They were holed down in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned his counsel, the counsel of the Most High. And so he, God, bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help them. But then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst forth their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he has shattered the doors of bronze and cut into the bars of iron. Then we come in verse 17, this third group. And these were the fools. Some were fools. Fools through their own sinful ways. And because of their iniquities suffered affliction. And they loathed any kind of food. They drew near to the gates of death. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. And delivered them from their destruction. And so let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Here comes the final group. And some were those who went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters, and see, they saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep. For God had commanded and and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And they mounted up on high on heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage, it melted away in their evil plight. And they reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. And so they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad the waves were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And then the passage summarizes. Because see, this is our God. He turns rivers into deserts. He turns springs of living water into thirsty grounds. A fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell. They establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like the flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
Father, as we, as we just set aside this time, Holy Spirit, would you guide us and lead us into all truth? Father, would you clarify things in our hearts and our minds? The way we see you, Lord, there's so much that influences what, how we come to you. Sometimes it's experiences in life where we just don't trust you. May they fall. Father, sometimes it's a false view of who you are. Would you correct us? Holy Spirit, heal us as we discover the depths of your love. In Jesus' name. So there's one thing we agree on, right? If God exists, God must be a God of love. And see, this passage is centered around the steadfast love of the Lord. Do you see it in verse 1? And then again in verse 43. If you notice in verse 1, he starts off, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And then in verse 43, he summarizes it. So both ends is about the steadfast love of the Lord. And in verse 43, he says, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, let me stop on verse 43. It says, consider, meaning God's love is not easy to comprehend. Now, that's contrary to our culture and really to our nature. We think God's love makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense to me, then it's not God's love. And we live in a culture that wants to form God into its concept of love rather than allowing Scripture to guide us in what love looks like because that word consider means to wrestle, to understand, to dive to the depths of, to allow it to overwhelm us, to get into the contradictions of it, and to wrestle with the truth of how God loves and how His love works itself out in our life. And that's what this passage is about. There's four stories of individuals that were going through difficulties, and God's love showed up in different ways. It wasn't all the same way. In some ways, God was powerful like a king or like a creator. In other ways, he was like a friend and like a healer. Sometimes he was soft and meek and mild. Other times he was powerful, loud, and miraculous. And through all these stories, we see God's love show up. So ask the question, where does this concept in our culture come from? when we talk about the love of God. You know, does it come from human history? Any historians love documentaries, watching World War II, World War I, seeing the history of the world as, as it has grown, nations against nations? Do you see evidence of God's love in the way that mankind treats one another? Our deep patience, love, self-sacrifice, natural things that are just ordinary to our nature. Do you see it in the history of religions? When you go back to the religions of the past, the great Vikings and Nordics, did they believe in this very common, safe concept of uh, loving God? No, they were terrified of God. You know, God was capricious, right? And if you wanted something from him, you had to give him the right tokens, the right sacrifices, the right things, because God would curse you and condemn you unless you met the needs of the gods. They would not meet your needs. Now, history tells us in human history and even in the history of religions that God is not a God of love. So how about the world religions? You know, so many people today will say that basically all religions are the same, right? But have you ever listened to them? And not to disparage them. I'm not here to tear down other faiths, but simply to say, what is it that they believe about the love of God? When you look at Buddhism or Hinduism or Taoism or Confucianism, is there an idea of a personal, intimate father, friend that comes alongside to love and walk with you? The answer is no. In Buddhism, love is actually, in some ways, the original form of Buddhism, love is something to overcome. It's an illusion in life to reach enlightenment. So you have to overcome this concept of love 
to truly become human. Those faiths don't believe in a personal, intimate God that loves us and comes alongside us as a friend or as a father. How about Islam? Does Islam have this idea of a loving, intimate God? And the answer, again, is no. Now, Allah is merciful, but he is the Almighty. He is powerful. He works and he moves upon the earth through his power and through his might. You don't see the concept of a God of love, certainly not the one that our culture believes God is, coming from the religions of the world. And so let's go to the place that evergreeners go. Do we see evidence of God's love in nature? Because certainly nature is kind. Certainly nature is self-sacrificing and loving. We don't see cruelty in nature or brutality. Because so often people who say, I'm, I'm just, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual and I believe in this God of love and I've got to get out into a nature of love. Do you see evidence of love in the way that nature cares for us? There's actually uh, a great author, won a Pulitzer Prize for this book called A Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Her name is Annie Dillard. And see, she wanted to escape the world, the harshness of the city, the harshness of humanity. She went out to a creek in Virginia, and she went alongside this creek to, to discover the peace of nature, to take back from that and allow her anxieties to cease and to truly experience the love that she found in nature. And here's what she says in her book. She observed. She just watched. She studied. She sat there alongside the creek, and she watched the praying mantis as they go through their mating ritual of love. Have you seen it? It's quite beautiful, actually. The two are intertwined in their passion of love while the female, yeah, eats the head of the male. And at that point, he probably didn't care. But is that an image of love? Or she studied this water bug that came alongside this frog sitting on a lily pad. Beautiful scene. Just the two in symbiotic relationship until the water bug injected this venom into the frog. I don't know if you've ever seen this. This venom actually causes the frog to melt from the inside. So that as the frog begins to melt, the water bug now sucks the inside of the frog back out and enjoys the love of nature. These are the, this is what's in her book. And so she's looking at nature and saying, is this an image of love? And here's just a short summary of what she described as she reflected on her time and her experience. She said, is there a better way to run the universe? Than what she sees here, evolution loves death. It loves death much more than it loves you or me. Must I then part ways with the only world I know? Meaning, if this is the world as it is, with cruelty and harshness and hate, then something must be wrong with me. Because, see, I want love. I want compassion. She's saying, must I part with the world I live in? Is there something wrong with me? See, I had thought to live by the side of a creek in order to shape my life by its free flow, by its peace. But I seem to have reached a point where I must now draw the line. Look, robins may die the most gruesome, slow deaths. Nature's no less pleased. The sun still comes up, the creek rolls on, and the surviving birds sing their songs. I cannot feel that way about your death. 
nor do you feel that way about mine, nor either of us, even about the Robins. We value the individual supremely, and nature, it values him not a whit. It looks for the moment as though I might have to reject this creek life unless I want to be utterly brutalized. Where does the concept that so many want of a God of love come from? If it's not history of the world religions, if it's not nature, Psalm 107 is saying it comes from the, the heart of God as it's revealed in the word of God. See, what Psalm 107 is doing is it's reflecting on the way that God has moved in the past, how God has showed up to people like Abraham and to Moses and David, and ultimately how God has showed up through the person and the work of Jesus Christ and how God has made himself known. If you want to grasp the love of God, it's saying, here are the things you need to consider. You need to consider the ways that God has shown up and how God has shown up in ways that demonstrate his love, but realize often sometimes in confusing ways. You see, the love of God only makes sense really in the biblical story of the Bible, because what's the story of the Bible? When you're going through suffering and hardship, when there's brokenness in relationships, the Bible says this is not the way that God intended things to be. God grieves. God didn't create a world of violence and vengeance and hatred. God didn't teach us to hate our enemies and to live for ourselves. No, God says this is not the world as I created it to be. Instead, the story of the Bible begins with good. God created all things good. What happened? You and I wanted to define good for ourselves. And don't we live that out every single day as we fight with God as his definitions? I don't like your definitions here about this or this. And so we constantly rebel against God. We play out the story of rebellion every single day. And what did God do when we rebelled against him? Did he reject us, cast us off, condemn us? No. No, he didn't give us what we deserve. Instead, God entered into human history. He became, he entered into his creation. He suffered, he died. Why? To heal us, to redeem us, to pull us out, to demonstrate that he is, is with us. See, the love of God is not easy. There's still questions. Why do certain things happen? Why does disease come upon us? Why does suffering come? There's a lot of questions. But see, it's only in the story, in the narrative of Scripture, of creation, fall, and redemption, that we begin to understand how our Creator could also love us and be our Father, our God, and our King. In this passage, we begin to see the complexity of God's love. So let's jump back in just for a minute and jump back into the story and discover how these four groups begin to reveal a unique vision of God's love. And the first group is found in verse 4. And it says, Some wandered in desert wastelands. And see, finding no way to a city to dwell in. And but why? Because in verse 5, they're hungry and they're thirsty. Their soul is faint, fainted within them. Now, what they're doing is these are homeless wanderers. And what do they long for? The opposite of what we do. We want to escape the city. That's why you live in Evergreen. Because what, what's the city? The city's problems, right? Evergreen is peace. We've got to get away from the problems of the city. And that's happening in many major, major metroplex areas in our country that people are living in cities. Why? Cities are places of problem. But see, not in ancient times. A city meant safety. The countryside meant death. Because what's in the countryside? Wild animals. There's marauders. There's thieves. There's robbers. You did not survive if you didn't have a family. And that family didn't have walls. And they didn't have fathers to watch over you. When you long for a city, you're longing for family. 
I'm longing for a home and I'm longing for a father to watch out for me. And so in their distress, they cried to the Lord. And I'm sorry, I keep hearing this Irish phrase, I cried to the Lord in his troubles. You know what I mean? And he delivered me from his, no, you got with me? No, that's okay. I, when I hear that, I just hear this kind of, this kind of, you know when people get together and they kind of get together, maybe even the bars and they're kind of singing those songs and that's kind of what you hear in this. It's this refrain of how God has delivered them and God showed up and what was he? He was a father. He protected them. He brought them in. He brought them comfort and in that they praised the steadfast love of the Lord because those who are homeless now have a home. So let's go to the next, the next storyline. And we pick it up in verse 10. In verse 10, we meet this second group. And some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, and they were prisoners in affliction and irons. So here are people by their own fault. They have sinned. They have broken the law. And because of that, they're now in chains. So what do they need? Do they need a father? That'd be nice. Do they need a city or family? No. They need a king. They need someone to pardon because they're guilty. They know they're guilty. Their judgment is fair and just and right, but they're sitting under their affliction and in their judgment, and they're saying, save us, rescue us. And God shows up, not as a father or a family, but as a king. He forgives their sentence. And they cry out to him, and they praise him. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And the steadfast love of God was manifest through his justice and his forgiveness. So one story, it's a father and a family. Another story of God's love is about justice and a king that comes along and pardons those who are guilty. Now watch the third story. And each time the story begins to change. Verse 17, these were those that were not just simply sinful, but they were foolish. Some were foolish through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. By their own fault, they've done something that's done damage to their body. And in verse 18, it says, their bodies were so broken. Have you ever been there where you just loathed food? You felt so sick, so broken. Even the things that brought health didn't bring health, and they were drawing near to death. So they've done something because of their own folly and foolishness that's leading them to a place that their body is broken. Maybe it's alcoholism. Their liver, their kidney is breaking away. Or it could be even in just in relationships. They were foolish in their relationships, and those relationships are breaking down. There's no way to bring healing and restoration. And so what do they need? Do they need a family and a father? Do they need a king? No, what they need is a healer. They need love to restore and to heal and redeem. And that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 19. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. And what did he send? He sent a word of healing, his word, and it healed them, and it delivered them from their destruction. They cried out to the Lord. The, the, God met them in that place of brokenness, and he healed them. So we have a father, we have a family, we have a king, we have a healer. And then finally, we come to this, this fourth group in verse 23. And some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. And what happened? Well, if you look down at the passage, a storm came. God allowed the waves to rise up, verse 26. And so they mounted up to the heavens, and then they went down to the depths, and their courage melted away in their evil plight. What happened? A wave came along that was too great. 
Sorry, guys, this thing is really bugging me here. You guys noticing that too, or is it just me? Got to love technology. So anyways, the wave comes, and because of that, the wave is so high, it takes them to the heights, and then it drops them down to the depths, and they cry out to the Lord because they're facing a foe that is greater than they can control. What do they need? They need a father, a family? That'd be nice. They need a king? No. They need a healer? No. They need a creator, but a creator who's a friend, a creator with the power to calm the seas, but one who is near to you to want to respond. You see in this story, they cried out to the Lord, and over and over it says his steadfast love endures forever. Four different scenarios, four very different experiences of love. In one case, God shows up as a healer. In another, God shows up as a king. In one case, God shows up as a father and as a family. In the other, he is a powerful creator and deliverer. You start to see this image of God and his love, not just as the familial, not just as one who accepts us and loves us and come alongside. Certainly, there's the healer and there is the father and the friend, but God is also a king. God is also one who brings justice and redemption. God is also a creator who is powerful and mighty and great. In this passage, we see a depth of God's holiness, his justice, and yet his tenderness and his love. It's a love that, if I could be honest, is complex. It's not simple. As God's love often isn't. That there are times where we experience life and we wonder, how could God be loving me in this moment? How is this an expression of what is good and what is right? And there's other times where we, we feel the nearness of God and he is close and he is dear to us. But in this passage, it shows us a complexity of God's love. And one of the privileges I think I've had as a pastor is to walk with people as they're wrestling with God. I love that opportunity and privilege. And here's what I found. Some people struggle with this concept of God being holy and just, that God punishes sin. And they'll say, you know, I get that, but I really love the intimacy and the nearness of God. I love this idea of a father and a friend that speaks to me. It's near to me. I, I just can't accept his holiness and his justice. And then there are those that are okay with his holiness and his justice. Maybe they've gone through injustice. They've seen the brokenness of the world, said somebody's got to fix this because we can't. But they really deeply struggle with this idea of being intimate with God, of knowing God's love as a friend, as a father, of the nearness of the spirit. And, and so often what we want to do is to take the complexity of God's love and we want to simplify it. We want to walk in God's love where we feel safe. It doesn't force us to trust him to give up our notion of what love is and simply to surrender to a God whose love is deeper and wider than we could imagine. The psalmist, what he's doing is he's showing us the complexity. And here's the point. Until you understand the impossibility of God's love, the love of God won't transform you. And until you wrestle, right? Remember verse 43, you've got to consider it. You've got to wrestle with it. You've got to recognize the love of God is not simple. It's, it's complex. It's difficult. That God is both judge and friend. He is both merciful and yet he is righteous. And so until we wrestle with the love of God, it's saying we won't experience the fullness of his love. So how do we do this? What I want to do is jump back into one story. We're going to close on this. 
jump back into this second group of travelers in verse 10. And I want you to notice the complexity. You probably didn't know, I didn't notice it the first time I went through it. But through the help of commentators, as you start to study this passage, notice God's role. It says, some sat in darkness, verse 10, and in the shadow of death, they were prisoners in affliction and in irons. Now, why? What happened? Verse 11, watch. Because they rebelled, right? They're guilty. They rebelled against the words of God. So God put them there. They spurned his counsel, the counsel of the Most High. So what happened? It's verse 12. So he, he meaning God, God bowed their hearts down. See, they were arrogant. They were prideful. And God brought them low. And he brought them low. It says, through hard labor. These are all metaphors, chains, labor, harshness. And so they fell down. And notice verse 12, they had no one to help. And so if you're in chains, because of your rebellion against God, and God puts you in those chains in this spiritual place where you know you've rebelled against him, who are you going to cry out to? It says they had no one to help. So who do they cry out to? The one who put them in chains. Does that make sense? Why would you cry out to the one who's put you in chains? If he is a king, and if God is only a king, what does a king do? going to leave you there. Because if a king is only about justice, well, you've gotten what you deserve. And church, how often do we display that type of God's love to the world? How is it that the church has abandoned the teachings of Christ? We're to love our enemies. And yet for some reason in the way that we express the love of God in our culture, we're okay hating our enemies. Well, why? Because, see, they should be in chains. And yet notice in this passage, those who were in sin, they were in chains. And they cried out to the Lord. And what did God do? Verse 13, that they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. And notice, he brought them out of the darkness, the shadow of death. He burst forth their bonds, the bonds that God had put on them. He is now breaking them forth. And so let them thank the Lord with his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the, uh, the bars of iron. God is just. He is righteous. But see, for those who cry out to him in, in humility, he is merciful and forgiving. He becomes a father. He becomes a healer. To those who are humble, that are willing to humble himself, God manifests his love through the intimate, right? Through the merciful, through the forgiveness. For those that oppose him, that, that want to stand in pride, they're like a spring that becomes a desert because they need to be brought low. But see, brought low for what reason? Not to hurt them or destroy them, but to, to cause them to experience the depths of his love. That's how this passage ends after the four stories. You, you notice that? It's like springs and deserts and the desert becomes water fruitful, and then the fruitful places become deserts. Because, see, God in his love sometimes has to bring us low to bring us up. Or when we are low, he has to, he has to bring us back up because, see, what God is, is after is a heart that's humble enough to submit itself to him to experience his love. Because, see, God loves, but realize he's not going to love you on your terms. 
Because if he's truly the creator of the world, see, God will speak into our brokenness and our darkness. He will have patience with us. But if he is the creator, if he's the king, if he is just, if he is holy, then you and I have rebelled against him, which means we're in chains. And he is just and right to condemn us. But what does he do when we cry out in our own foolishness, right? We're the ones that caused this. How does he respond? If he was just a king and just a judge, he would leave us there. But because his love is complex, when we are humbled, he comes in as a friend, as a healer, as a forgiver. That we love, not because we've figured it out, but God first loved us. And see, this story of love changed the psalmist. Now, he didn't understand how those two things came together, and that's really the problem of the Old Testament. The prophets are like, how can you be just and yet merciful? I don't get it. But through Jesus, we see God's justice and his mercy come together. That Jesus wasn't just simply a friend in accepting all of those and every path in life. No, Jesus spoke truth. And sometimes in speaking truth, it brought chains. Because I recognize that I'm out of line with the truth of God. I'm living, right? Remember what happened to creation? Hey, I'm going by what I think is good, not what you think is good. And because of that, I'm under the condemnation of God. But see, in that place of condemnation, when they cried out, what did Jesus do? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He took our brokenness upon himself so that through his brokenness, we might be healed. We might have a family for those who are homeless. We might be who are foolish, healed in our relationships and in our brokenness and our emotional insensitivity and our, our brutishness. We might be healed, that he might be a king that gives us law and that he might be our creator that in miraculous moments rescues us out of the painful toil of life. Do you see the complexity of God's love? Church, we want to believe in a God of love, but we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? If it doesn't include the cross and the resurrection... And if it doesn't include us going out into the world to love the world as God has loved us, then something's wrong with this God of love we worship. Because this is love. You ready? Not that we love God. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. This is love. Notice, not that we got it right. But the king and our father came, and through his life, he set things right. And what do we have to do? We just got to cry out to him. I hope in this series, as we've gone through the Psalms, you're learning one step is to cry out. Whether it's in fear or in distress or in times of rejoicing, we're learning to humble ourselves and to cry out to him. Because see, when we find our place, ourselves in a place of humility before a God who is just and good, who is our father and our friend, he will lift us up. And then we have a testimony to a world that feels cast out by God, who's broken by life and under the weight of the chains of sin. Church, this is the love and the power of our God. Let's walk in it. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for those that are here today that have never cried out under the brokenness of life, whether it's in the foolishness of their decisions or even in the condemnation of sin, that the wages of sin are, are death. We can't heal ourselves. We are those that rebelled 
And Father, yet we want to continue, even as we know you, to define what is good and what is right. And you don't cast us off, but in your patience, your steadfast love, you pursue us. I pray for those right now that are walking in that place of arrogance and rebellion. Father, I pray your love would humble them to the depths, that your spirit would cause them to cry out and say, Father, accept me. Through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, I recognize that I have rebelled against you, set up my own standards of what is right and what is wrong, and even defined your love and limited the ways you could express it. Father, in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit, would you bring life? And Lord, for some of us who are just walking through darkness in the valley of the shadow of death, remind us that you are our friend and our father. You want to bring us behind the walls, but we have to, again, to humble ourselves and surrender. And so, Holy Spirit, would you, in that place of desperation, help us to cry out and cling to the, the God who is our redeemer, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. Humble us, Father, and allow us, in Jesus' name, just simply to surrender. You are creator, you are king, you are God. I do not want to define what is good or right. Father, I am done fighting against you. I want to surrender and submit to your good and just will. And Father, would you heal the relationships that are broken as we surrender? Would you make right the path before us? Holy Spirit, do a work among us, we ask in Jesus' name. I stand. How great thou art. 
says about me.